Well, good morning, everyone. As Al mentioned, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Bentley Crawford. I've been on staff here at Palm Vista as a church administrator now for nine months. Yeah, it's been a great time. And as he said, this is my first sermon. So may God have mercy and may he build his church. I'm just grateful for the opportunity to be able to preach God's word to you all this morning. I count it as an enormous privilege. And so if you have your Bibles, would you please open them and turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 3. We've been preaching through the book of Ephesians now here at Palm Vista for the last two months. And if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to get up and grab one. We have English and Spanish Bibles in the back. Also, if you have an electronic device with a Bible on it, feel free to use that as well. Let's get in the Word this morning. Let's fix our eyes on the text. And let's listen carefully to the reading of God's holy Word. There's no words more important than God's, and they're found in this book, the Bible. So let's pay attention. And so I'm going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 14. Ephesians 3, verse 14. Paul is speaking, and he says the following. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that According to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. Well, before we go any further, let's ask God for the help that I and that we desperately need this morning. Let's pray. Oh God, you are God. You are here with us by your Spirit. You are the one building your church. Gracious Lord, I ask now that in in accordance with your desire to build your church, that you would do just that this morning. Would you grant me to preach your word with accuracy and power? Would you open my lips, Lord, to declare your praises? And would you grant us all ears to hear and eyes to see your glory this morning. Despite all my shortcomings, Lord, would you, by your spirit, pierce hearts with your word. Oh God, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as many of you already know, Um, It's been on Facebook, and Al mentioned it a few weeks ago. My wife and I had the wonderful experience of meeting our second daughter, Annie, early Monday morning 
March the 25th, uh, March the 12th, in a most unexpected way. Let's just say that this baby came a whole lot earlier and a whole lot faster than we ever would have anticipated. You know, it would have been nice beforehand to know, hey, after you've had your, second, your first child, hey, these things can kind of just shoot right out of there. Now, I know that's not the case in every, with everyone, but it certainly was with us. And so after only two hours of what we thought was false labor that wasn't going to continue, my wife hit me with these words. Sweetie, the baby's coming. <laughs> okay, so, so I'm, I throw it into overdrive. I'm trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to pack our bags, get my laboring wife to the car, as well as our sleeping two-year-old daughter? Thankfully, I didn't have to figure that one out. Because when I informed Sarah Love that we were going to be heading to the car and going to the hospital, she hit me with yet more shocking news when she said, I can't move. I'm not going anywhere. I'm thinking, what? Is this really about to happen? So suffice it to say, minutes later, without any help, I find myself personally delivering our daughter in our bathroom floor in our apartment. It was crazy. It was an experience that we'll not soon forget. And God was so merciful and kind to us. I mean, both baby and mom are doing just fine. And so in the weeks since then, we've experienced what I'm sure many of you with kids have experienced at some point during those early days. Just that experience of trying to figure out exactly who the baby looks like. You know, does she look like her mom? Maybe she looks more like her dad. Oh, maybe her older sister, or, or is it her grandmother? You know, you have people who are saying, oh, you know, she's got her, her dad's eyes, but her mom's face. But then someone else will say the exact opposite. No, 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 she's got her, her mom's eyes and her dad's face. I mean, she's just so darn cute. But we just can't quite figure out who she looks like yet. And the reason for this is that as true as it is that she's fully our daughter, she's fully born in our image, the reality is that this is only the beginning. Now begins the process of living as our daughter. Over time, she'll begin to, to grow and to more and more to look like us and even to some degree to talk like us and, and to think like us and act like us. Well, in Ephesians so far, Paul has said many things about who we now are in Christ, both individually as Christians and corporately as the church. And all of these things that he's said so far are true of us if we're in Christ. But just as my daughter is fully my daughter today, there's so much ahead of her in her life as my daughter. Over time, she will grow and, and one day, Lord willing, arrive at full maturity as a woman and as the daughter that she already is. And in a similar way, so is our case as the church. Right now, though, my daughter needs help to grow into the full expression of who she is. And so does the church. So do we. We need help to grow up into who we are. We need help to become who God has made us to be. We need power to fulfill God's purposes for us and through us. 
And so how is this going to happen? How are we going to do this? Well, I believe that what we'll see in this passage this morning is that Paul is praying for just that. And that through his prayer, we'll find out exactly where that power comes from. And so I believe that this prayer is, as my main point says, that this is Paul's prayer for power for the church. Paul's prayer for power for the church. And so let's dive into it, shall we? But before we do so, I do want to say one thing. No matter where we are coming from this morning, no matter how we are feeling, some of us might have the thought on our minds, why does this matter? Why should I care? We're studying a prayer. What does that have to do with me? I get that. But I believe that God is calling you this morning to listen up. And to pay attention, because get this, in looking at this prayer, we are looking at the very heart of God for you. We're looking at the very heart of God for you. Paul wasn't praying to mainly a group of super pious, super Christian Ephesians. No, he was praying for people just like you and me. People with real sin. People with real problems people who struggled in their faith. And as we see in this prayer, God's very heart for us, we can also be sure that we'll address more than just the superficially spiritual areas of our lives, but it'll address the very core of who we are. It will address you who are here this morning feeling apathetic towards God. It will address you who are here this morning who are distracted by the guilt of your sin. It will address you this morning who are consumed with the pressures of life. It will address us all in every area of our lives. And so if you're a Christian and you're in this room this morning, or if you're listening on audio later, you can be sure that this prayer is for you. This prayer is for you. And so now shifting our thoughts to the prayer, what I've called Paul's prayer for power for the church, we're brought to what I have as point one, why we need it, why we need this power. And so the prayer begins with these words. If you look with me in verse 14, he says, for this reason, for this reason, which leads us to naturally ask, naturally ask, for what reason, Paul? Why are you praying? Well, this prayer that we're looking at, it stands between the two main halves of Ephesians. Ephesians is six chapters long. We're here at the end of the third chapter. And so in just two weeks, we're going to be diving headfirst into the second half of the book of Ephesians. So we stand at a sort of precipice between the first and the second half. We're at the hinge at which the book of Ephesians turns. It's like it's the consummation of the first half, and it's the catapult into the second half. Paul is he's looking back, and he's looking forward. And so much of what he said so far in the first half, they're considered to be indicative statements. He's just been declaring what's true of us if we're in Christ. You are God's adopted children. You are God's glorious inheritance. You have been made alive in Christ. Just so many of God's glorious purposes in saving us. And so now here we stand. 
Paul's shown us some wonderful things, things that are truly breathtaking. But he's not stopping there. He has much more to say, and what he has to say in the coming chapters concerns our lives and how we live them. He's about to get practical. And so before moving on, though, Paul knows something. Better yet, God knows something. He knows that as wonderful as the things are that we have seen, we need help to see them more clearly. And even more than that, he knows that we need help to be who we already are. We need help to become who God has made us to be. We need help to live this out. And I think there's something else on his mind, too. It's not only God's wonderful purposes for our individual lives, but it's also God's glorious purposes for the church. When he says, for this reason here, in verse 14, it appears that he's picking back up on his train of thought that he broke off from, from in Ephesians 3.1 at the beginning of this chapter, which Al's been speaking about that passage for the last two weeks, Ephesians 3.1-13. through 13. So, that means that what he's largely praying, what he's praying here is largely a result of what he was saying in chapter 2. Specifically his words in Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 22. And so if you'll just look up the page with me, in verse 22, he finished chapter 2 with these words about the church. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place. For God by the Spirit. And so I believe that Paul is praying specifically in response to what he has told us in regards to God's purposes for the church. Namely, just thinking about those purposes, one of the things we saw at the end of chapter 1 was that the church is the fullness of Christ. And then here in chapter 2, that we're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And then even last week in chapter 3, we saw that the church is the revealer of God's manifold wisdom, the revealer of His mystery. And so, what a wonderful thing it is to be part of God's church. Are you amazed that you are? Paul was, and he was praying for it. He was praying for it. And so having seen all these glorious things, now we're left to wonder, okay, that's wonderful. What do we do now? How how do we respond to that? How do we become all that? Are we just merely passive participants? Well, by peeking ahead into the next half of Ephesians, I can tell you that Paul is about to tell us, oh, you have much to do with this. I'm about to tell you to become who you already are. What? How can we become what we already are? I know it sounds strange, but this is why he is praying. It's for this reason and with this aim. Paul is overwhelmed with God's glorious purposes in the church, and he falls to his knees in prayer to the Father on our behalf for power to be who we are, to become what he has made us to be. And we need power, don't we? Just as our precious little daughter, Annie, needs power to grow, we need power as well. Looking forward into some of the themes from the next half of Ephesians, we need power to speak the truth and love to one another. We need power to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 
How are we going to do that? Husbands, you need power to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wives, you need power to love your husbands and respect them and submit to them as the church does to Christ. Children, you need power to obey and to honor your parents. Fathers, we need power not to provoke our children to anger, but to raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We all need power to walk in love towards one another, to walk wisely in this world, and to stand firm against the spiritual forces of evil. We need power. We need it. And so Paul continues in verse 14, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. For us, this idea of kneeling in prayer, Paul says he bows his knees. It may sound normal, but in Paul's day, it was more common to stand. What's being communicated is is that there's a weightiness to this prayer. There's a reverence for the God being prayed to, and there's a deep love for the people being prayed for. If you'll remember in the digression over the past two weeks, in Ephesians 3, 1 through 13, one of the things that Paul was concerned with was that these Ephesians wouldn't lose heart. That they wouldn't be discouraged. Their apostle is in prison. Their apostle is in prison. Persecution is coming from the Jews as well as from Ephesian Artemis worshipers. Paul cares deeply for these Ephesians, and he's crying out to God for them. And get this, Paul is praying to none other than the Father. The one who has become his and our father by adopting us into his family through his son. And so Paul goes to God with confidence because he knows that as his loving father, he's given him access. His loving father has given him access. And then he further describes the father as the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. When you name something... You exercise power and sovereignty over it. This phrase carries with it the idea that God is the sovereign creator of all things in heaven and on earth. Our very existence is dependent on God. It is defined by God and it stems back to God. He is the ultimate father. And this is the father that Paul is praying to. And so then he goes even further. He begins his petition in verse 16, where he says the following, that according to the riches of his glory. What a wonderful phrase. Look, Paul's not asking in some false humility that God would have mercy on his unworthy servant Paul and give him crumbs from his table. No, Paul, as a recipient of God's adopting grace, knows that he has full access to God and that God is fully for his people. He's not asking that God would answer this prayer out of his leftovers, but that God, being his father, would answer out of the riches of his glory. He asked that God would answer this prayer in a way commensurate with his riches, the riches of his glorious grace. Peter O'Brien says here that the resources available to fulfill this confident request are limitless. The resources available to fulfill this confident request 
are limitless. And so my, how bold Paul is here and how bold we as well are welcome to be if we're in Christ. God's character and his nature as his father is for Paul a fundamental ground for intercessory prayer. And so the question for us is, does this understanding of God as your loving father undergird your prayer life? Do you see him simultaneously as both the majestic God who is overall and has all power and authority, as well as the attentive and caring father who loves you deeply? That is the God that Paul is praying to and asking for power from. And so now that we know why the Ephesians needed this power and why we need this power that Paul is praying for, the question begs itself, where do we find it? Where does this power come from? And what is it for? Well, when you look at our little daughter, it's obvious that she needs help. I mean, she's, she's an infant. She needs strength and she needs power to grow. But where does it come from? Simply from within herself? No. One of the things that my wife and I have been struck with with each of our children is just how utterly dependent they are on us, especially on their mommy. Her help, her power, it comes from without. It comes from outside of herself. And so does ours as the church. Paul wanted these Ephesians to know where that power comes from. And he's about to pray that God would work it into them. And so let's look at that. Point two, what it is for. I'm going to read verse, uh, Ephesians 3, 16 through 19. He keeps going. He says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I mean, look at those verses. This is an incredible prayer, and there's many wonderful themes in this dense passage. But one thing that really stands out that I've mentioned is this theme of power. As I mentioned earlier, this prayer at root is all about power. And so Paul moves into his petition and immediately begins to ask God to strengthen these Ephesians. And his prayer here, look, it's just, it's crazy. It's just one request after another, and they're all building on one another. He asks that we may be strengthened inwardly by the Spirit, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that being rooted and grounded in love, that we may know the love of Christ, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. And this is an amazing prayer. And so starting at the beginning of it, one of the first things that we notice in verse 16 is that this power is from God. He's asking that God would grant them to be strengthened. This is not a, God, would you just help those who help themselves kind of prayer. No, Paul is looking to his sovereign, powerful God and Father and asking that he would give them power, that he would supply it, that he would grant it. And the way through which God strengthens his people and gives them life and sustains their faith, look with me, it's through his spirit. It's through his spirit. And so the power 
Though the power originates with God and it comes from outside of us and outside of these Ephesians, it doesn't stay outside of us. But through the indwelling spirit, the spirit that is within us strengthens us inwardly. And this is what Paul prays, that the Ephesians would be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in their inner being. God is in the business of changing us from the inside out. Until the final day when we're ultimately changed and given new physical bodies, the reality is that outwardly and physically we age. We grow old and we eventually die. But inwardly, that's not the case. We are told that as Christians inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. And so when we talk about this inner being, we're talking about the center of our personality, our thoughts, our will, our emotions, our moral being. And so the focal point of God's empowering work is our inner being. It's our hearts. And so Paul is praying that God would strengthen these Ephesians through his spirit in their inner being. But for what? Well, that's where verse 17 comes in. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. There's this wonderful connection here. And it's this, that where the Spirit is, there Christ is. How does Christ dwell in someone's heart through faith? By the Spirit. But you may be asking, wait a, wait a minute, Bentley. Um, these Ephesians are already Christians, right? Well, yes, they are. Well, if they're already Christians, didn't we learn in uh, Ephesians chapter 1 that they're, they're already sealed with the Spirit? Right again. So why would Paul pray for them to have Christ dwell in their hearts through faith if he's already there? Well, the focus here isn't on his initial indwelling, but listen to this. It's on his continual presence. It's not on his initial indwelling, but it's on his continual presence. And so let's look at this word dwell. The word dwell here in this verse, it's a particularly strong word in the Greek that has this idea of moving in, of settling down, of inhabiting. It's it's a permanent dwelling, not a temporary abode. And so Paul is praying that God would grant them power so that Christ would make his home in their hearts. That he would take up residence and begin to make it more and more fit for himself. Think of it this way. When you initially moved in to your current home or apartment, the place was yours But it took a while for it to really become your home. Over the months and years, you made the place more and more liking and fitting and appropriate for yourself. Well, in a similar way, when Christ comes into our lives, we are fully His. But what He is inheriting is not a brand new house. To be sure, we are new creations, but when he takes up residence in our hearts, he finds the moral equivalent of an old fixer-upper that needs a lot of work. And he sets about making the place more appropriate and fitting for himself. And so this is what Paul is praying for these Ephesians. And it's God's desire for us. And then there's one more crucial element here that we can't breeze by, and it's these final words, through faith. Through faith. Through what? Through hard work? Through faith. Faith in who? Faith in Jesus Christ. Hope in Him. 
Paul's praying that God would strengthen these Ephesians by the Holy Spirit in their inner beings so that they would be moment by moment, daily, trusting Christ, believing on Him so that Christ may more and more take up His residence in their hearts, that He might dwell in their hearts through faith. And as they trust Him and believe on Him and lean on Him and depend on Him every day, that He might make them more like Himself as He dwells in them. And so Paul is praying that God would give us the strength through His Spirit for this to happen. And one of the ways that this happens is through our abiding in the Word of Christ, the Bible. Believing on Christ, having faith in Christ, is intimately connected to our abiding in His Word. And so the question for us there is, are we listening to what he has said. Are you spending time with him in the scriptures? So Paul is praying that God would give these Ephesians power so that through their faith in him, Christ would be dwelling in their hearts. But then Paul goes on. He says halfway through verse 17, if you look with me, that you being rooted and grounded in love, This phrase here is a kind of transitional phrase connecting what he's just said with what comes next. This isn't part of his request. Paul's not saying that God would make you be rooted and grounded in love. That's not what he's asking. No, he says that you being rooted and grounded in love. It's as if Paul is saying that you, as a result of Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith, are rooted and grounded in love. That's part of what happens when we become Christians and as we increasingly walk by faith in Christ and as He makes us more like Himself. Listen, love is the key ingredient to the mixture of the Christian life. It just won't work without it. God's love for us, our love for God, and our love for one another. As Christians, we are awash in love and it should be flowing out of us. And so if you look here, Paul mixes metaphors between that of plants and buildings. Love is what the plant of our lives should be rooted in. Love is what the building of our lives should be grounded in. It's the foundation of everything else. And so if, if, if you'd like to know if Christ is dwelling in your hearts through faith, a few questions you might ask yourself is this. Am I becoming an increasingly loving person? Do I wonder at God's love for me? Do I love God more than I used to? Do I love other people more than I used to? Love is the primary fruit of faith in Christ. And as Christians, it should be our defining characteristic. Not the world's definition of love, but a Christ-fueled, Holy Spirit-empowered love that affects all that we are. And so as those who are by definition rooted and grounded in love, Paul keeps going here in verse 18 and asks that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And so there's that word strength again. Paul's continuing to pray for God's power. But for what this time? Well, simply put, that we would know the love of Christ. 
But look at this. Paul doesn't just simply say that. Look at how he phrases it. He starts off by asking, asking that they would have strength to comprehend, to comprehend, to, to grasp, to get their minds around this large and complex and wonderful idea. And then he continues to comprehend with all the saints, with all the saints. Don't breeze by that. Once again, in this petition, Paul is asking that we would experience more of what we already know. As Christians, these Ephesians already knew Christ's love, but he's asking for more. And while it's true that we may be individually able to grasp the love of Christ in some small way, it's only as we do so collectively as the church together that Christ's love is truly and fully comprehended. And so Paul continues, the anticipation, the anticipation is building. What does he want us to have strength to comprehend? He says that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth? Paul's reaching for adequate language here to communicate something that's so vast, something that's so wonderful. He uses these dimensions as a metaphor to try to capture the wonder of it. And then he resorts to paradox. Look in verse 19. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. To know something that surpasses knowledge. What Paul is getting at is that this thing that he is talking about, namely Christ's love, that is that it's so wonderful. It's so all-surpassing. It's so preeminent. And he wants them to know it. To know it. And so let's pause here for a second. This word know here is an important one. It communicates far more than simply an intellectual acknowledgement of a fact. It carries with it also this rich idea of a familiarity or a close acquaintance with something through experience. It's an experiential knowledge. And so Paul is asking that these Ephesians would know, that they would be familiar with, that they would be intimately acquainted with the love of Christ for them. Not their love for Christ, but Christ's love for them. And this, my friends, it's God's desire for us. So the question for us is, do you know this love? Are you acquainted with? Are you experiencing the vast, knowledge-surpassing, wonderful, deep, awesome love of Christ for you? Are you? Let's talk about this love. How has Christ loved us? How has he loved you? Let me tell you, all these doctrines that we've seen in Ephesians so far, they're they're rich and they're glorious. Election, predestination, adoption, forgiveness, uh, justification, sanctification. They're all precious doctrines. But listen, they are fueled and made possible by the love of Christ for us. If God didn't love us, if the Father didn't love us, if the Son, Jesus, didn't love us, if the Holy Spirit didn't love us, none of this would have ever happened. We would not even exist. Forget having no hope. We wouldn't have even existed. Our very existence is proof of the love of God for us. But, oh, it goes far beyond that. Let me take you on a walk down the road of Christ's love for us. And let's observe how wonderful it is. 
So first, what God planned before the foundation of the world was carried out as God Himself, Jesus Christ, was born as a baby human being. If you are in Christ, Jesus loves you. And He was born as a baby for you. And secondly, this baby, Jesus Christ, He grew up into a man. And He began His public ministry of healing the sick, casting out demons, recruiting disciples, teaching peoples, and announcing the good news, the gospel, as He made His way towards the very day that He was born for, the day of His death. He lived a perfect life. If you are in Christ, Jesus loves you. And He lived His life for you. Third, what began as a warm welcome soon turned into increasing persecution as many leading Jews, the very people of God, began to stir up opposition to Him. God in the flesh walking around the very world he had created, among the people whose very existence was dependent on him, was hated. He was reviled. He was scorned. If you are in Christ, Jesus loves you. And he suffered persecution for you. Fourth, he was betrayed. He was handed over to Roman soldiers. He was mocked. He was spit upon. He was beaten. And finally, though no guilt was found in him, he was crucified. He was nailed to a wooden cross and he hung to die. With his very life, Jesus was paying the penalty for our sins. He was experiencing in our place the wrath of God that we deserved. He was purchasing our forgiveness. He was conquering Satan. And he was delivering his people from their spiritual bondage. If you are in Christ, Jesus loves you. And He gave His life for you. Fifth, after this, He rose from the dead. God vindicating and accepting His sacrifice by raising Him. He later ascended into heaven and is at this moment seated, exalted at the right hand of God, making intercession for His people, ensuring that they will never be taken out of the Father's hand. If you are in Christ, Jesus loves you and He intercedes for you. And sixth, now Jesus is building His church. He is its head. It is His body. He's slowly preparing it as a bride for Himself to be presented one day without spot or blemish, but having been completely perfected and conformed to His image. If you are in Christ, Jesus loves you. And He's preparing you for Himself. And finally, Jesus is waiting 
until that appointed hour when he will return. History will be consummated. Our dead bodies will be raised and we will see him as he is and we will be made like him. We will dwell with God and he with us. There will be no sin, no tears, no suffering anymore. It will be absolutely, unspeakably glorious. If you're in Christ, Jesus loves you. And he's coming back for you. And you will see him. And you're going to be with him forever. And so do you know this love? Do you not simply know it? in merely an intellectual fashion. But can you feel it? Is your heart touched? Is your mind enlivened as you experience Christ's love for you? This was Paul's prayer for the Ephesians and it's God's desire for us. And so at this point, I want to address two groups of you. And the first is those of you who are in Christ but you're not experiencing his love. You say to me, Bentley, I don't feel it. How can he love me? I'm such a disappointment. Do you know what I've done? Well, I don't know what you've done. I don't know where you've been, but I do know one thing that God does. He's seen it all. And he knew it would happen before he even sent his son. Yet, he sent him anyway. Because, listen, his purpose was to save sinners. He came to call sinners, not the righteous. And so, if you've believed in Jesus, but find yourself unable to escape the guilt of past sins, or if you have believed in Jesus, but have subsequently found yourself ensnared by the temptations of this world, I believe that Jesus is saying to you this morning, I love you. I have died that you may live. You are forgiven. Look to me. It's not too late. There's no sin so great that my blood can't cover it. I love you. Now follow me. And the second group I want to address are those of you who are not in Christ. Maybe you know that you aren't, but maybe you don't. Maybe you're consciously antagonistic to Christianity, or maybe you've grown up going to church and your parents are Christians, but you've never put your faith in Christ. You just think that it's all about following rules and being a good person. Well, here's the reality. Both of you, are outside of Christ. All that I've said so far this morning does not pertain to you. But hear this, it is available to you. God is calling you this morning saying, I love you. I gave my son. Trust him and receive eternal life. Listen, Christ is the key. You may think that God loves everyone, that we're all his children, but the reality is that that is not so. If you have not believed in Jesus Christ, God's love does not rest on you. His wrath rests on you. And you can only expect judgment. And so, dear friend, 
flee to Jesus. Repent of your sins. Confess them to God and believe the gospel of his son. That Christ died for your sins and rose again. May God grant you to know his love. And so if all that we've seen of God's love this morning wasn't wonderful enough, here's the really wonderful thing about this prayer. It's not quite over. God's desire for us to know the love of Christ does not end there. It's not simply an end in itself, but it's a means to what Paul says here at the end of verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And that brings us to point three, where it leads. And so let me tell you briefly about this word fullness. I've often read this prayer and never understood what this last line means. Well, if you'll remember, in Ephesians 1.23, it mentions that the church is the fullness of Christ. And then in our prayer here, God's, uh, Paul is asking that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. But we're still left to wonder exactly what this word means. Well, we're given a hint as to what it means in Ephesians 4.11-13. So if you'll turn the page with me, Ephesians 4.11-13. It says the following, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, here we go, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so finally we see here that this word fullness carries with it this idea of maturity. The church growing up into all that she is. Paul has been praying for power for the church. Power to know and experience Jesus Christ, particularly his love. And now we see the ultimate end for why he is praying this. That we, as the church, may be filled with all the fullness of God. That we may be who we are. That we might grow up into the full expression of who God has made us to be. Just as my little daughter Annie needs help to grow up into and act like the daughter that she already is, so Paul is praying that the church would experience a similar living transformation and grow up and live out all that she is by looking to and knowing Jesus Christ. And so here's my concluding statement that I want to leave with you all. It's that knowing Jesus Christ is God's power for the church's maturity. And so do you want to change? Do you want to grow? Looking forward to some of the themes of Ephesians 4 through 6, do you, do you want to walk in love towards one another? Do you want to walk in wisdom towards the world? Do you want to stand firm against the spiritual forces of evil? God wants us to. But how are we going to do this? How are we going to live this out? How are we going to fulfill all of God's glorious purposes for the church? Listen, this prayer is so instructive for us as we move into the next half of Ephesians. And it's imperative that we fight to remember it over the rest of the sermon series. The reason why it is so instructive is that Paul doesn't simply pray that God would give us power to love one another, though he could have. He doesn't simply pray that God would give us power to walk wisely toward the world. No, 
there's an extra link in the chain. And that link is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Instead of praying that God would give us power to love one another, it goes like this. God, give us power to know Jesus Christ and his love so that we may love one another. God, give us power to know Jesus Christ and his love so that we may walk, we may walk wisely towards the world. God, give us power to know Jesus Christ and his love so that we may stand firm against the spiritual forces of evil. Knowing Jesus Christ is God's power for the church's maturity. He is the key. He is our hope. And so where are you looking for power? Where is your hope for growth and maturity? Look to Jesus. He is the power. He is the hope. So at this time, I'd like to invite the the worship team to come on up and I'll pray for us. God, help us, Lord. Would you empower us by your Holy Spirit to know your Son, Jesus? Help us, God, to walk by faith in him. Help us, Lord, to know his love. And as a result, help us to be filled with all of your fullness, to to become who you have made us to be. Strengthen us, we pray. Thank you for your precious Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, guys, before we sing, I'd like to, uh, to read to you a little bit of the song that we're about to sing. We sang it earlier at the beginning. It's called, You Are Our Hope. And verse 1 begins this way. Comfort for weary sinners. Here you go. Strength for the struggling saint. Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. And then verse 2 begins this way. Power to fight temptation. The world and the devil's lies. Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. And then the chorus You are our hope. You are our joy. You are our overcoming King. So we sing hallelujah. Jesus is alive. And so friends, we worship a risen Savior. Jesus is alive. And because of that, we can know him. We can trust him. We can know his love because it's a living love. He is our hope. He is our strength. He is our power. So let's sing out to him. Let's sing.